listen, so we're starting this series. Uh, we've done this before. This is season three of When We Met. And what we do is we take about three weeks and we uh, tell stories. And uh, we interview some folks in our church. And then we just pair up a, 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 an interaction that Jesus has with somebody in Scripture that has, I don't know, a lot to do with what we're talking about. So what I wanted to do is just share, uh, have Dana just share a few more things. And um, it takes a lot of courage to get up here and to do this. Um, and and, and just, uh, uh, just, just to let you know, we, we, we chose all introverts the next three weeks. So it's going to be awesome. <laughs> um, so, right, I think you're all introverts, at least. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk later. Um, but Dana... Growing up, um, you, you shared a little bit about your family, but you became this kind of kid who uh, really kind of pulled yourself away from people. And, and, then, and then you get into high school, and, and junior high and high school, which is like human flourishing, right? I mean, it's just like where your best self comes out. And, um, and, and tell us what high school was like, and then um, it just like, Kind of what that looked like to be Dana in high school. Um, well, slightly further back, I think I got the most beat down in middle school because I, I went to this brand new charter school where I was the oldest class for three years in a row because they kept adding one. And there were four boys in our class of 16. And I was the only Christian. And I was the only shy kid. So <laughs> I got uh, pretty beat down there. Um, there are lots of stories, but um, by the time I made it into high school, I was just super insecure and super shy, and um, just so much non-acceptance from people over the years had just shut me down, mm -hmm. um, and I had just put up more and more walls mm -hmm. that I didn't even know about just to protect my heart. Um, at somewhere along the way, it became less protecting me and more me feeling like I was protecting other people from having to deal with me mm. um, because I just, I wholeheartedly believed I had nothing to offer anyone and um, that I would always just be that weird, awkward person that people like pity hung out with. So by you hiding from people, you were actually telling yourself a story about yourself that they would, you're protecting others from you. Right. Gotcha. And, and tell us, I mean, this is like one of the most amazing things I've ever heard. When Dana told me this, I just like inside, I died a little bit. Tell us where you used to eat lunch for the first two years of high school. In high school, I, uh, I sat by myself at a table for a couple days and it was so painful that I started to just walk over to King Supers. I'd grab my bagel and I'd come back and I would go eat in a bathroom stall. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, That's it smelled in there. <laughs> It yeah. wasn't a very great place to well, eat. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I wouldn't know about ladies' rooms, but um, I wouldn't eat my lunch in a guy's room, that's for yeah. sure. Um, and so you start to build these walls, and, and then you, you're, you're really hiding in plain sight from other human beings. What was that like? It was lonely, and I would tell myself that, you know, I just like being alone, and I would occupy myself. I 
I, to be honest, most of high school, I would just hang out by myself in my room all night. Um, You're like a parent's dream. Yeah, that, my mom probably thought that. Right. But I was playing like solitaire by myself with cards, <laughs> like worthless activities. <laughs> so uh, it's just hard to think back about how much I wasted time, like just occupying myself, like keeping myself away from people. I don't um, think I've ever told anybody that before. No, that's, well, it, <laughs> if you haven't told anybody something, it's good to tell it to a lot of people at once. Okay. <laughs> it's just, that's the rule, you know. Um, and then, so you meet Ben, and Ben is, like, probably the worst person for you at this time, and or the best, depending on how you look at it, because Ben's trying to draw you out and give you courage and all these things, and you're like, leave me alone. Um, and so you, you start to <laughs> date, and you have this really awkward uh, first date over coffee that you call it the most awkward date ever um, in the history of forever. Um, and you guys fall in love, and you get married, and, and yet, but th that doesn't solve anything for you in the sense of all the walls you have in your life. Um, and so over time, you and Ben struggle with that. Tell me, what, what was that like for you guys? Oh, it was, first of all, it's God that I even married Ben because, yeah, he was the opposite of what I wanted at the time and he challenged me and I just wanted to be left alone. <laughs> but um, it's, <laughs> it, yeah, t for the first 10 years of our marriage, it was a lot of, um, I mean, Ben coming, like, as a newer Christian, he's on this, like, high and I'm the, like, old jaded Christian lady that he's, like, dragging along and... It was just kind of a weird dynamic for a while, but um, it was hard because anytime he wanted to talk about something simple, just even like a sermon we just listened to, um, I would just shut down because I would, I'd feel like guilty that I wasn't thinking those things with him or that I just hadn't had any thoughts about it because thoughts are hard. Um, and then I would just feel shame, and I would just get this, what we called the dark cloud over my head. Um, and I had just been tuned to shut down, turn off my emotions, and he would get really mad when I wouldn't talk to him. He would just, I think it was like the worst possible thing I could have done to him. And that would just, it would just be a cycle, because then you'd feel shame, and then you'd feel bad about not sharing, and then there would just be this constant thing for you guys. Mm -hmm. So then we, we uh, s somehow convinced you to go to faith walking retreat, and, and um, you came without Ben. And um, you had that, you shared a little bit about that experience on the video, uh, writing in your journal and, and writing those words and, and, and not knowing where they came from. And well, we know where they came from. Yeah. But tell us a little bit about what we call. Um, in faith walking language, we talk about vows, false vows in our lives that, that end up, um, they're, they're made in our lives because of protection. Like there's certain things that we want to protect in our lives, certain way we want our life to be. And so we, we start to live out of this false self. Um, and um, Dana does this, did this through putting up walls and protecting herself. Um, but she's realized that there's a whole new way to live, a whole new guiding principle for her. So you just share a little bit about what that story is for you. Um, the, the vows I've kind of refined over the time I've been doing faith walking here are 
Um, I, I told myself that I would not feel deeply about other people because it made me vulnerable to them um, and the power they had over my mood and everything. Um, and then that I would not show my true self to people because they never accepted it. Um, so the funny thing is like after the 101 retreat, um, it was all, it's all about vulnerability and authenticity and it's something that I didn't, I thought I did until I really did it. <laughs> and then, uh, it was just, it's almost like addicting. You're all of a sudden, you just want to like tell everything to everybody because it goes so well. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I'm going on a tangent. No, you're fine. Okay. But, um. So I'm just going to get you back on. Thank you. So what have you, you talked about that vow of, you talked about your vows. What do you, what do you want to be now heading forward? Where are you shooting? Um, I am shooting to um, be authentic at all times. Um, for so long, I was so worried about people accepting every part of me that I would just show what I thought they wanted to see. So it's it's been a year of learning who I am because I didn't even know. Um, and I'm also learn, learning how to love people with God's heart because um, I didn't like people for a long time. They were horrible. Mm -hmm. And I, I it become so messed up by all of it that I only saw the worst of people and I always assumed they had the worst of intentions and um, so that's been a fun new lens mm -hmm. to put on when looking at the world. Mm -hmm. um, well, and I love at the end of the interview that you said it's, it's like I'm alive for the first time and that has to be just a wild experience. Mm -hmm. So, and that's changed everything for you. And, and for those of you who know Dana and have been around this church, you probably noticed it. Um, she, she was like, uh, uh, yeah, it was wild. And Ben, for sure, definitely noticed it. Well, let me pray for you. And thank you so much for your courage. God, thank you for Dana and all the work you're doing in her life. Um, we thank you for bringing her, bringing her out. Um, letting her see her life, letting her see the reasons why she's made these choices in her life, and then rescuing her. God, we know that she was already a follower of you before this, but what you've done is shown her life to the fullest, given her a taste of what that looks like, and how she can live fully alive and authentic in this world following you. And so we thank you for Dana, we thank you for Ben and their kids, and... Um, and uh, walk, walk with us as we talk about this uh, story with Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks, Dana. Give Dana a hand, everybody. And uh, really quick, um, this video is brought to you by Chad Ferrier over here. Did a remarkable job and uh, was up pretty late last night. Um, and so just thank you so much, Chad. Appreciate it. Um, hey, if you've got a Bible, we're going to briefly look at John chapter 11, um, and we're going to be looking at a story that's pretty important uh, when it comes to um, what Dana just shared. 
Um, it's so encouraging, isn't it, to hear from other people? Anybody feel that way? Like, there's like a part of this that she's like, okay, I'm not alone. Um, other people have stories. And we talk about this all the time, but it's, it, it's impossible to follow Jesus alone. And um, we need each other, and we're inspired by each other. Um, and we need other people to see things in our lives that we don't see and to, and to bring us out. And we're all about story. In fact, one of our values as a church is, let me just read it to you. It says, we value sharing stories. They connect generations, break down walls, and help us remember we're not alone. And so that's why we do this. That's why we continue to push into stories with each other. Let me just give it a little setup to the story we're going to talk about with Jesus. The book of John is an interesting how it's, how it's broken up. Uh, the author uh, of John, John, um, he starts with a poem. Um, it, it's kind of in the beginning was the word, you know this story. And then he has a story that follows this poem. Uh, and it launches the reader, okay, us, into a, a series of miraculous signs that Jesus does. And all of these signs build up, and, and as they build up, they generate more and more controversy with the religious people, okay? So the first half of the book are these signs of John, and they're generating controversy, and people are amazed, and all of that. And it all culminates in probably the most controversial sign of the book, and that's the raising of Lazarus. If you know the story, there's this, there's this point um, in the story that, um, well, there's a number of points in the story that are just really, really um, intense. And all throughout the book, John uses imagery, uh, polar opposite imageries, like light and darkness and death and life and these big, huge differences, these big, different poles in the story. In fact, in John 20, 31, it says this, and John says, this is why he wrote all these things down. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, and so this story we're about to read is actually the hinge of Jesus' ministry according to John. And, and we're going to jump in in, in um, chapter 11, verse 1. It goes like this. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus, Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for the, God's glory that the that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Now I've been wondering about this. Some of you have been wondering about this. Um, there's so much in this story that we can't really get into as, as we're trying to as concentrate towards the end, but this is like a weird spot, right? It's like he loved him, he believed in uh, Lazarus, and he, and he loved his sisters, and because of that, he stayed where he was two more days. And we know the outcome of the story, but can you imagine being in the story? Like the disciples know about this, 
Um, and they're like, shouldn't, shouldn't we go? <laughs> you know, there's a lot happening. And um, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, looking on it from maybe the outsider's perspective, e- either Jesus is incompetent or he's just lying to us about what he can do. There's just something here that's just tough. In verse 8, it says, But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and you are going back? Now, there's a political geography happening here that's really important. Bethany, it says, it actually says in, in this account, and John wants us to know that it's only two miles from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is getting more and more intense, and there's more and more people that want to kill Jesus. And so being that close, I mean, two miles, some of you can get there pretty quick. If, if, if people who want to kill you are only two miles away, and you choose to go to that location, you're, you're kind of on your own, right? You're, 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 you're going at your own risk. And Jesus answered, are, not, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And they don't really understand his metaphor because they say, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. And Jesus has been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So they're just like, uh, he's not sleeping, you know, and he's like, duh, I know, and this is like this weird interchange, right? So when he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Okay, so Jesus all along knows that he's going to perform this sign. All along, he wants them to see this happen. There's something bigger happening here than just healing a guy or raising someone from the dead. There's something happening here. Then Thomas, also, also known as Didymus, said that the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I mean, so there's this idea behind this that like us going to Bethany means that this is going to get crazy, that there are people who want us dead. And there's something that's going to happen if we get this close to Jerusalem. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. We, we, we know this. So, so Bethany, the word Bethany means house of the poor. And some scholars and archaeologists believe that this was actually a location outside of Jerusalem where people, it was almost like a hospice. That yes, there was a village there, but a number of people in this village have actually taken up the, the, uh, the mantle of caring for the sick and the poor in this village. And so Jesus had a huge heart for this village, not only that Martha and Mary were in this village, but also that what this village stood for as a place to be. Now, this is a really important part of the story because we know that Jesus is a wanted man. We know um, that Lazarus is dead and has been dead for four days. Now, let me just tell you, in Jewish culture, um, that was a big deal. Because in Jewish culture, there was, the thought was that um, the first day or two or three, the spirit of the person who died would actually be hovering around, hanging out still. That was, the, that was the belief. And it had been four days, right? So there's even more mourning that's happening. And it's, 
pretty warm in Palestine, so things decompose quickly, and um, let's just say that they already had to deal with the body. They already had to do all the things that they needed to do. And the interesting part of the story is it starts with him and the disciples saying, we, 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 you know, he's saying, we got to go back. And it ends, actually, this chapter ends with Jesus uh, declaring that one man must die for all. And so there's this interesting um, thing that's going on. Verse 19, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, yeah, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though they die, uh, believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come to, into the world. So she really didn't answer his question in some ways. This is interesting. Let's keep going. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her and supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Now what's happening here in Mary's house is something called sitting Shiva which is a group of people in your life, the, the closest friends you have come to your life to help you mourn. They sit with you. That's all they do. They sit with you. They're with you the whole time. And so they've gone through different stages of the grieving process from uh, the wrapping of the body and, and all the different things. And, and like I said, this is the fourth day. I mean, we're well into the week of mourning. And they come out with her. And when Mary reached the place where the Lord was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, the, see Lord, they replied. And it says here, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? So there was just this, you know, the, this little crowd rumbling happening. And uh, some people are kind of for him. Some people are like kind of skeptical. And this is where we're going to camp here as we finish up. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor. Actually, the word says noxious smell, overwhelming stench. It is Palestine. It is hot. 
and it could not have been a good thing. I mean, they're just, you know, looking out for the people. Lord, you don't want to do that. For he has been there four days. Some places in, in, in those cultures, actually, they would bury them people immediately. It was that bad. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and the cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I think what's interesting in this story, and there's so much we could talk about, we could spend weeks on this story, this account, is how the fate of Lazarus and the fate of Jesus are kind of wrapped up together, okay? Because the fate of Lazarus has everything to do with the fact that Jesus has to show up in Bethany to raise him. And what's really important about that is that actually ties Jesus' fate to the fate we all know, the outcome we we have with Jesus. Meaning, by Jesus going to Bethany, it set in motion the events that eventually led to his crucifixion and resurrection. So both these men are kind of tied together because Jesus is walking towards his death, and he's about to have his own tomb experience, you know? And, and this tomb experience is the one that walking out of his tomb experience, Jesus' tomb experience, would result in a real, abundant, flourishing life for those who would follow in allegiance to Jesus. So, like, there's this, this kind of foreshadowing of his resurrection through Lazarus, which is pretty important. And Jesus would make the journey, he knowing well, full well what would happen to him, um, and, and he would make this journey through death and out the other side. So his self-sacrificial act uh, that opens the tomb, that, that opens the tombs in our lives, will actually show up um, in, the, in the coming chapters of John. And, and so as I reflected on this, and I was reflecting on Dana's story, there's a part of us, and at the end of Dana's story on the video, she said, I feel like I'm alive for the first time. And I think there's a part of us, all of us, that we're all kind of dead at some level, right? I mean, there's a part of us that we really have put into a tomb and rolled a stone in front of it. And we feel forsaken, and we feel that this is a, a kind of a dark place. It's wrapped up. It's alone. And we really don't have any interest in hearing God there at all. And for some of us, it might be a, a, a very past place. For some of us, it might be a very recent experience. We're too tired to fight. We're just trying to survive. And so that place is there. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've given your allegiance, like we talked about last week, to Jesus, you have resurrection power in you. That's what scripture says. You have resurrection power in you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. The one who says, I am the resurrection, resides in you. And that's true. But it's also true, okay, like Paul says, 
we live in a body of death, that we have uh, places in our lives where we are, we are living a tomb experience, that your past, maybe your college days, your first marriage, your relationship with your kids, your parents, your former employers, or maybe the relationship you have with yourself, like Dana just shared, is a real tomb experience. And maybe, like Dana, you have entombed yourself for what you think is protection, but all it has done is start the decaying process in your life. And you have resurrection power within you, and you have new life within you, but that doesn't change the fact that you also deal with the smell, the odor of life, right? The, the smell of your present or your past moral failings. Maybe it's, maybe it's the smell of wounds that were done to you. Maybe it's the smell of scars on your heart or bitterness for a life that you thought you would have at this point in your life, but you don't. Maybe it's the smell of pain, of rejection. Maybe it's self-frustration or even self-hatred that, that's there. So the reality is we can all turn to each other and say, you know what? You smell. You could do that. I mean, that would be, it's just be awkward. But, you know, in context, the reality is we all have a tomb experience. We all have something tomb-like in our lives. I saw a bumper sticker the other day driving. This is another bumper sticker story, folks. So, um, you, know, you know my aversion to Christian bumper stickers, right? Some of you know this. This one, if you have this one on your car, I just want to apologize ahead of time. <laughs> this one... I'm driving along. It was just kind of a rough day, um, just thinking through a lot of things. And this one says, whatever the question is, the answer is Jesus. I, it doesn't that sound sweet, though? Like, if only we were still in Sunday school class. Yes, world, I'm still in Sunday school, and the answer is always Jesus. But when you're going through a tomb experience in your life, um, that answer just doesn't work, right? Does it? Who makes deformed babies? Who did my, why did my parents divorce? Where do earthquakes and hurricanes come from? See, sometimes Christian cliches can be like a Lysol spray for the odor of life but it doesn't really deal with it. <laughs> it's like a, it's a way of just making things smell better for a time, right? The thing is, is if you want the resurrection, you need to deal with the odor that comes with death. And we need to be able to face the fact that when we open the tombs in our lives, it's gonna be a little messy. And if you wanna get out of addiction, you need to deal with the odor. If you want to get out of the shame of your past, you need to deal with the odor. And the only way to come out of the tomb is to take the odor with you. And the reason why I'm talking about this is that I recently heard a story, two guys in our church, they don't even know I'm sharing this and I'm not going to name their names, but they were able to openly share a little bit about their family and their growing up and um, in a small group. And <laughs> I feel bad I'm telling this, I'm not going to get specific, but it really has to do with their relationships with their moms. They're grown men, and they have rough relationships with their moms. 
And there's real pain in both of these men's stories. And I've known both of the stories, but they didn't know each other's stories until they were sharing each other. They were sharing their stories with each other. And, and they were, it was kind of like a moment where they're like, maybe we're brothers, you know, and they're not. But, um, but it's just something really special to know you're not alone and that that odor in your life isn't something that is repulsive and you, I don't want to talk about it. See, here's the thing. Being a resurrection church means that you and I are willing to deal with the odor that comes with each other's lives. That we have to be willing to give each other the space to smell a little bit. That we have things in our past that are, have been entombed, that are, are ugly, that are dead, that Jesus wants to bring back to life. We are about restoration, and we, we're about being restored. And this means that um, it's going to take some people in our lives to help roll the stone away. You know, Jesus says, he tells the disciples to roll the stone away. There's like this, there's like a team effort here in watching Lazarus walk out of the tomb. That we would speak the truth to each other, that we would... And, and let me just say this, as, as individuals, if you want resurrection power in your life, you've got to be able to want to come out. You've got to be able to want to say the things that haven't been said before. You've got to want to be able to be a little bit more vulnerable than you've ever been before, like Dana shared. And there's something so beautiful and so freeing about that. And if you want to see resurrection power happen in each other, you have to commit to not running away when you get a whiff. Does that make sense? Let me pray.